This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. With the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965, the federal government had new tools to accelerate the processes of desegregation in southern states. According to one calculation, fewer than 5% of African-American students in the 11 states of the former Confederacy were attending school with whites. That was back in 1960. But by the fall of 1970, this 5% figure had grown to over 90%. That process continues into the 1970s, but it slows down dramatically. So these events in the South during that one decade from 1960 to 1970 are really significant. And so we celebrate that period of time because it led to the desegregation of the public schools of the southern states of the United States. But what happened to black school teachers during that time period? Were they desegregated as well, or were black teachers crowded out of the southern schools? And if they were crowded out, where did they go? So these very interesting questions are our topic for today. I have with me Owen Thompson, an economist at Williams College, who has taken a very careful look at these questions. And he's joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Owen, for uh, participating in the education exchange. It's great to be here, thank you. So, Owen, let's first of all cut to your principal finding. Over the years I have heard, uh, over the m many years I've been around uh, the education scene, I've, I've frequently heard older black educators say that black teachers lost their jobs when southern schools desegregated, but I just didn't know whether to believe all of this. They could have been just isolated incidents. Uh, do you really have now, finally, a measure that can tell us how many teachers lost their jobs as a result of the desegregation of the schools in the South? Yeah, I, th I think I can put a pretty credible set of numbers on that, on that critical question. So I collect data from a large number of southern school districts, about 780 school districts across eight states. And the principal finding is that a school district transitioning from fully segregated education to fully integrated education, which approximates the experience of the modal district over this period, reduced their employment of African-American teachers by right around 25%. So these were not isolated incidents. Uh, there, it, was, it was widespread and, and quite substantial in scale. So I noticed in some of your estimations, it got as high as 39% uh, or something like that when you, you know, in your, in your model, when you didn't control for various. Are you really confident on that 25% number, or could it have been over, a, you know, a large, somewhat larger, somewhat less? Well, it, it very much depends on exactly what you're interested in. So in the, the danger of getting kind of too much into the weeds here and losing the main, the main thrust, like the 25% number is what I would say happened to the typical school district. So if you give each school district each equal weight and estimate the relevant, the relevant models, it comes out at 25%. And I'll, 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 stand, I'll stand by that 25% number. A related but subtly different question is, what was the aggregate reduction in black teacher employment in the region over this period? The reason this is not exactly the same as what happened in the typical school district is because sub-school districts were much, much larger than others, and so a 20% reduction in black teacher employment in Atlanta had very different aggregate impacts than a 20% reduction at some small school district in Texas. So if you want to know the aggregate reduction, it's slightly smaller. I think my estimates have that around 18 or 19 
percent, and this reflects the fact that black teacher displacement was most severe in relatively small school districts. Well, which, were these teachers actually fired, or or were they just sort of phased out, and then white teachers are hired in their place? As you know, the teaching force turns over pretty rapidly in most school districts. A lot of people teach for five years and go on and do something else after that. So was this a, just a normal replacement or were teachers being fired? Yeah, so there, it's not something I can quantify in a really precise way in my data, but anecdotally and looking at the historical record, there were absolutely some teachers who were overtly fired on the basis of race as a direct result of school desegregation. At the same time, you're absolutely right, the teachers turn over quite a bit. And another important contextual factor here is that the overall need for teachers was declining somewhat during this period, both because there were reductions in student enrollments, led primarily by reductions in white student enrollment as desegregation proceeded, and also because it's inherently inefficient to run two different school systems within a particular district, and so there were some efficiencies realized from merging the two systems. So, you know, I think both overt firings and just selectively hiring white teachers to replace teachers who quit or the natural churn of things or reduction in overall demand due to these other changes uh, were, both, were both important. Um, I can't and, put it And you say that the, the school districts actually lost white students over this period of time. So where are these students going? Are they moving north or what's happening to them? Yeah, I don't have a particularly clear story on that. I mean, you know, the re overall reductions in white enrollments were more modest than the kinds of things you see in Detroit or Chicago or Boston during the busing, uh, you know, the, the busing policies of the early 1970s. And that's largely due just to sort of the geography and educational landscape of the region. So, for instance, there weren't a lot of Catholic schools. So it wasn't, you know, there wasn't an easy private school option. There also aren't the same kind of clear urban-suburban lines. So there were reductions in white student enrollments. They primarily fled into so-called segregation academies, which were private schools designed specifically to allow white families to pull their students out of newly segregated, newly integrated institutions, uh, but maybe not quite as much as you would get in a kind of classic urban northern. So or, there was yeah. some of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of that. But okay, so some black teachers were being fired because they didn't want black teachers is sort of what you're finding is suggesting here. But isn't that unconstitutional? How did, how did they get by with this? Yeah, uh, that would be a question to direct to the uh, Justice Department of the uh, 19, 1960s. I mean, I think that, you know, in the exact same piece of legislation, this 1964 Civil Rights Act, which really was a catalyst to a lot of this desegregation activity, there was another title, which, at least on paper, uh, you know, banned racial discrimination in labor market contexts. And so, it, you know, this is maybe a case where the difference between overt firings and just changing the racial composition of hires was important. It's hard to kind of prove that uh, you know, your composition of new hires is discriminatory in intent. Well, didn't but, some teachers uh, fire, uh, file a lawsuit? Didn't they, they try to uh, fight this? Yes, there were a number of lawsuits. Uh, most importantly was a lawsuit commonly referred to as the Moberly, the Moberly precedent, which was actually uh, immediately after the Brown v. Board ruling in the mid-1950s. And by and large, federal courts were not as receptive to these complaints by teachers as, as you might imagine. In the paper, I reproduce a, a choice quote from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, 
who in ruling against a group of African-American teachers who had been dismissed during desegregation, wrote something along the lines of the 14th Amendment is not a teacher tenure law, the 14th Amendment being the amendment which guarantees a right to due process and equal protection under the law. So a very snide comment. You know, the courts were overwhelmingly focused, I think, on the welfare and integration of African-American students. The real focus was always on students. And, you know, teachers at best fell by the wayside and at worst were just simply not not given, not, not made a priority by either the federal courts or by federal policy. Well, how about the unions, the teacher unions? They're supposed to represent teachers. Why weren't, were they, uh, uh, what did they do? Yes, there's a, a, a bit of, I don't want to say irony, but there, there are some sort of counterintuitive things happening in unions. So the main federal teachers union, the National Education Association, was at least in this period not a particularly racially progressive organization. And in fact, you know, they didn't, I think, endorse the Brown ruling for several years after it was ruled, and they didn't desegregate their own Southern affiliates until well into the desegregation process. Somewhat ironically, is what I was referring to, is that eventually they did desegregate their Southern unions, and this led to the disillusion, uh, you know, to, to the breaking up of many Southern teachers unions who were explicitly focused on black teachers. And so at the height of the displacement crisis, the National Education Association is desegregating their unions, but that left black teachers without a unified voice at the height of the displacement uh, crisis. So unions turned out not to be particularly useful either in this context. Well, I know you did a lot of work to come up with these precise figures, so maybe you could just give me a little, uh, without going into all the details, because I know it's very complicated, but what were the, is the data available that allows you to really track these, these changes? The data exists, but it was not uh, easily available. So this is, uh, I don't consider myself an economic historian exactly, but I, I took a foray into sort of original data collection and archival work. And so a lot of the data came from surveys conducted by the Office of Civil Rights for enforcement purposes after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. But I had to extend that data pretty far back to the pre-desegregation period in 1964. So I spent a lot of time transcribing reports issued by state departments of education or state superintendents offices or equivalent state agencies that, you know, for, you know, they, they, they contain a lot of sort of innocuous information, like this is how many school buses we used and this is how many, you know, lunches we served in the, in the lunchroom. But they also report the number of teachers in each district. And because as far as they were concerned, they were running two different school systems, they reported those numbers in a very kind of, you know, open way disaggregated by race. So you can absolutely go back and look at administrative records in the pre-desegregation period that will tell you the number of black teachers and the number of white teachers in each district and in each year. So I consider them quite, rela quite reliable and, uh, and, and just what you need to do this kind of analysis. I think your analysis takes us up to 1972, but sometimes when I look at the data out there, I see a lot of desegregation occurring beyond that. Uh, up into the mid-70s and beyond, with 1980 as being sort of the cutoff date when desegregation slows down. Uh, why did you choose to sort of focus on this period between uh, 1960 and 1970? Yeah, so I think it's important when we're talking about kind of, you know, desegregation activity in the 1960s and 1970s to differentiate between a process which happened in the South, which was the dismantling of de jure legally sanctioned segregation in schools, which is something that happened immediately after the 1964 Civil Rights Act in what I'm studying here, from a broader set of rulings, and, and most importantly probably rulings related to, to busing of students, which really came into effect in the early to mid-1970s with famous cases in Detroit and Boston and Chicago and elsewhere, which were an attempt to dismantle 
de facto segregation, which derived from residential, residential sorting or residential segregation. So, so I'm really focused in on you know the dismantling of formally segregated schools in the South here. You know, I think there could be a lot of interesting opportunities for future research looking at what happened to the racial composition of the teacher labor force in Boston during the height of busing and, and thing, things of that nature. But I do think of those as fairly distinct sets of desegregation activity. So uh, one of the things you've done is to look at what happens uh, to teachers when they can't get a job in the uh, public school system. Uh, so what happens, where do black teachers go? once they don't have this opportunity to uh, teach in the uh, southern school? Yeah, so this is not something I can answer with the administrative data I was just describing a moment ago, but I, I, I present what I think are some pretty credible estimates using data from the decennial censuses that's kind of tracking groups of, groups of individuals in 1960 and then again in 1970 and trying to figure out what happened to some of these you know, what, what I estimate is really a large number of African-American teachers who lost their jobs in this period. And I think, you know, a pretty clean story actually emerges. About half the black teachers who lost their jobs in the South during this period entered lower skill professions within the South, so non-professional occupations of various kinds, things like private household workers or low-level manufacturing work was more common for men. The other half of displaced teachers, approximately, moved to the North to continue their teaching careers. And so, uh, you know, what what appears not to have been the case is that displaced African-American teachers were able to just kind of readily enter other forms of professional occupation. So it wasn't like you, you know, lost your job as a teacher and then walked down the street and got a job as an accountant or something. It looks like these teachers were, were substantively hurt. And it could have been not just physically a teacher doing this, but the replacement teacher, the, the, te the person who would have become a teacher in a southern school in the past now decides to look for a job elsewhere instead. Correct. So I, I want to be careful about saying, you know, the elimination of, a, of an actual black teacher, you know, an actual teaching position held by an African-American, as opposed to, you know, a job that would have existed and would have been held by an African-American teacher in the absence of student desegregation. But um, so they're, they're close related, but, but not the exact same thing. And, you know, I, it's more anecdotal, but I was able to find some old surveys conducted by uh, you know some some newspaper editors and others from this period, and they were surveying you know uh, placement directors at the teaching schools of historically black colleges, and those those placement directors reported pretty substantial declines in enrollment with uh, of Af you know in, into teacher training programs at black colleges. So that, make, that makes jobs, sense. When the jobs aren't there, why train for them? Precisely, if you don't yeah. anticipate. And I mean, I, I should say also that, of course, there were lots of labor market opportunities that were opening up to African Americans in the South in this period. So maybe, you know, previously, if you were a high-ability, well-educated Southern African American, teaching was pretty much your only choice. Whereas now you could, you know, you could become a lawyer or a physician or an engineer. So that some of this might have been, been Yeah, voluntary. but you're not seeing a lot of that, right? You're seeing more evidence that they're going into less skilled occupations. Correct. At, at least amongst the stock of individuals who were teachers when desegregation occurred. As you have kind of new cohorts that are entering the labor market, they, they did enter higher skill professions than, than earlier cohorts. Uh, there's been a lot of work on that in other literatures. So now, how distressed should we be about all of this? Because there's a number of studies out there that show 
that when the South desegregated during this time period, you get rising student performance, especially in the black community. The National Assessment of Educational Progress shows really some remarkable gains among black students uh, during this time period. And I know my friend Rick Hanushek always says, the one reform that's actually worked in American education has been school desegregation. That's the one thing that we can really sort of identify as probably having had a positive effect on student performance. So maybe these black students are now getting a better education because of a change in the teaching force. Now, I'm just raising this as a question. I'm not saying this is in fact the case, but how do you respond to that, that point? Yeah, uh, so I, I mean, I would emphasize first that the teachers themselves were harmed. They were, they were dismissed on the basis of race and that violates most people's senses of fairness and it violates the law. And so the teachers themselves matter. It's not just students that matter. You're absolutely right, and I agree with Professor Hanushek that you know this was a period of unprecedented progress in terms of the achievement gap and, and other things. Um, you know, when you proceed with student desegregation, lots of things changed. Um, what I'm emphasizing here is that the racial composition of the teacher labor force changed, but school funding changed, peer effects could be quite relevant, you know, lots of things changed. And so, I think you know, it's very plausible and I think quite likely that the other changes happening as desegregation proceeded were sufficiently positive that they outweighed any perhaps negative effects that occurred from having African American students have less exposure to own race teachers. Because there is a contemporary literature that does find pretty substantial effects and much of it I think pretty, pretty credible, pretty credible research designs that finds that African American students benefit from having at least some number of own race teachers for purposes of mentorship and, and, other, and other things. And so if you think that, that type of result applied in this period too, then dismissing a lot of black teachers would lower achievement, but there were apparently other things going on that were sufficiently large to, to overcome that. And there's no reason to think that you had to dismiss black teachers in order to get school desegregation. They could have taken a different approach than just replacing black teachers. So why did school boards do this? Are they just racist, or did they have? Was there were they were they under political pressure to do this? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, in the paper, I write down a little theoretical model. I don't know how how insightful it, it really is. And when I when I sat down to think, what what was the goal of the school boards in this period? And I should mention that while the Voting Rights Act was passed subsequently, during the period I'm studying, school boards were overwhelmingly composed of whites. So the, you know you can sort of I think infer at least some segregationist preferences on the part of policymakers that I think what school boards were probably most concerned about was the pairing of African-American teachers with white students. And they might have been concerned about that for purely kind of racist uh, reasons, or they might have been concerned about large-scale white flight that, you know, for, for many white families, having their kid, their white kid go to school with black kids was one thing, and they didn't like it, but they could, they could live with it. But having their, their white kid have an African-American teacher was a, was a bridge too far, and they would find a way to leave the school system. So, so school boards could have been concerned concerned about that. Yeah, so if you have a situation where you're allowed to segregate the students and you're concerned about cross-racial pairings of students and teachers, there's an easy solution. You just hire teachers in proportion to the racial composition of the students. Once you desegregate students, there's a really direct link between the racial composition of your teacher labor force and the number of white kids who are going to have a black teacher. And I think that's probably what was motivating a lot of the policy changes that happened in this period. Well, thank you, Owen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. This is a fascinating study of the way in which positive developments can have negative side effects. I've been speaking with Owen Thompson at the University of Wisconsin. 
I'm sorry, who was at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and now is joining the faculty at Williams College. Thank you, Owen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me at every Monday at noon when the latest Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education Next website.